Well, this evening we are going to read a story that involves pilgrimage, the act of pilgrimage. A pilgrimage is a, a journey of purpose, and it's more than just like a regular journey where you have a chain of events. It's more than a vacation, because when you go on a vacation, a vacation is about the destination. I'm going to Cabo San Lucas to go scuba diving or something. It's all about going there. But a pilgrimage is about something that happens to you along the road, and ultimately it's about coming home a changed person. A pilgrim is one who leaves home, then goes on an adventure or a journey, and comes back home completely different. Home is the same, but you view it through a different perspective. And to me, one of the most enduring stories of pilgrimage, besides scriptural stories, is the hobbit. I mean, come on, it's a great story. In the beginning of the story, we meet a, a hobbit named Bilbo Baggins. And Bilbo, what we learn about him in the beginning is that he is a respectable hobbit. And in fact, that term respectable means a great deal to Bilbo. He's punctual. He's neat. He's courteous. He's very concerned with protocol and keeping his house and his dishes and his doilies in order. But Bilbo has an encounter with the wizard Gandalf. And this meeting sets Bilbo's life on an unalterable trajectory that will change him forever. Bilbo sets out on an adventure with dwarves of a most unsavory nature. And on his adventure, he loses what he would at one time consider his respectability. He's anything but neat and tidy on his adventure. His life begins to seem unmanageable, out of control, and yet he becomes more alive than he had ever been when he was taking care of his dishes and his doors. He meets all sorts of different kinds of people, different sides of kinds of creatures from elves and dwarves to dragons and wizards and wargs and all kinds of fun, nerdy stuff that we can talk about later. When at last Bilbo returns home, he carries the same name. He goes to the same address to lie his head, but he is altogether different. He's matured. His priorities are realigned. He's no longer respectable but he is respected throughout all Middle-earth. Bilbo went on a pilgrimage and came back home again only to have a greater sense of what home really means. Now, pilgrimage doesn't always have to be intentional. You don't have to say, I'm leaving my house today to go on a pilgrimage so that when I come back, I'll be different. Uh, it's about how we respond to life circumstances that turns a bunch of chains of random events into a pilgrimage. So a biblical example of this would be the story of the prodigal son. In the story, the younger son of a family despises his father, demands his birthright, and takes the money prematurely, goes off to a foreign land, and lives high on the hog. He's tasted the delicacies of the world, but then, after his money runs out, he's brought low. He's now able uh, to see home with a fresh perspective and appreciation. Feeding pigs and longing to eat the food that they were eating, he realizes, dang, I had it pretty good back home. So he returns home with a completely new perspective, a changed heart, a repentant mindset. Now this evening we're going to look at the coming home of the pilgrim Jacob. 
You may recall that as a young man, Jacob, in the book of Genesis, deceived his blind father and his elder twin brother by stealing the blessing and the birthright from their family. Now, that was really stupid because Jacob's older twin brother Esau was renowned as a, as a hunter and a woodsman and an outdoorsman. You just imagine this guy's this big, hairy, killing machine, and he made that brother mad. And Esau was out for blood. And so Jacob, his parents say, you, you've got to get out of here. Uh, we're sending you to Haran, 500-mile journey boy, get going. And maybe up there you can find a wife from our people. Some of our clan live up there. So Jacob, on his way to Haran, 500 miles, all by himself, he ends up on this journey in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. He's at night, alone, alienated from his family. Has a stone for a pillow, and that's how pathetic it is, right? And as Joshua read a moment ago, we see how God revealed himself to Jacob. He encouraged him in a dream saying these words, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Now, as you might expect, if this happened to you, Jacob was in awe. He worshipped God right there on the spot. In fact, he renamed the place. He said, now, this place in my book is called Beth-El, house, Hebrew, Beth-El, God, the house of God. Jacob promised that if God would go with him, would care for him and provide for him on this journey, that one day he would return to Beth-El and set up shop there and worship the Lord with his family. So Jacob moves on, finds his beautiful bride-to-be Rachel at a well outside of Haran. And her brother Laban says, sure, you can marry my daughter if you work for me seven years. Pretty hard labor as a shepherd. So Jacob works, and it's such a romantic story. I remember the scripture says he works his seven years, but to him it was like a day because Rachel was so hot, and he was just going to marry her, and he gets in the wedding tent and lifts up the veil, and it's Leah, Rachel's older, kind of uglier sister. Oh, Laban has deceived Jacob. But he says, that's all right, I'll give you to Rachel too, a two-for-one deal. You just have to work for me seven more years. So after 14 years, this guy really wants his freedom, wants to go back to Bethel like he promised God. And so he escapes by God's providence. And then he realizes, uh-oh, standing between me and home, that older hairy brother that's a really good hunter. Oh my. The night before his encounter with his brother Esau, Jacob, in the darkness, meets God. God comes down and wrestles with Jacob. They wrestle until morning, and as dawn breaks, Jacob is physically defeated. And yet he receives this blessing. God gives him a new name. No longer will your name be Jacob. That really means in Hebrew, deceiver. But it will be Israel. One who struggles with God, or actually etymologically more accurately, God fights. God fights, which means God protects. God is able 
to fight for you, Jacob. Now, after this amazing experience, you'd think that Jacob would be on cloud nine. We talked about this last week, but he returns to his old ways. God has given Jacob a new name that implies that God will fight for him and protect him. But when Jacob's daughter Dinah is captured by this pagan, the pagan Hivite, Hivites, that's what I was going to say, Hittites, another tribe. Uh, when, when she's captured and violated by the Hivites, Jacob all of a sudden loses his courage. He's no longer physically powerful enough to go fight for her, and yet he hasn't trusted in that name Israel yet. He doesn't trust that God really will fight for him, and so he is completely passive. And in the power vacuum in that family, his father is passive. His two boys, Simeon and Levi, step up and slaughter the Hivite men in the city. By the end of Genesis 34, Jacob is terrified. His sons have now tarnished their whole family name to all the other Canaanite people. He's afraid that these other tribes will now look at Jacob's family and say they're dangerous whenever you come into contact with them you need to kill them and it's here that we pick up the rest of the story tonight we're coming to the end sort of the main part of Jacob's pilgrimage his return to Bethel after 20 years 20 years after his first encounter stand with me please as we read Genesis 35 1 through 15 Then God said to Jacob, Arise, and go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household, and to all who were with him, Put away your foreign gods which are among you, purify yourselves, and change your clothes, and let us arise and go to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had and the rings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alon Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come forth from you. And the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you. And I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel.
Father, I am so thankful that you are a God who breaks into our world when we least expect it. Oftentimes when we least expect it. Lord, I'm thankful for the story that reminds us of your faithfulness, of the way that you are with us all the time, even when we don't sense it, even when we know we don't deserve it. And I pray, as always, that you would move this experience with your word beyond information and that you would get into our hearts by the power of your spirit and cause transformation deeper trust, Lord. Encourage us. Pray for joy in the Holy Spirit. Amen. The story is amazing on so many levels. I'm only going to be able to talk about some of them. But let's consider for a moment what Jacob must have felt like after his failure in chapter 34. Jacob, this, this father of nations is completely passive when his own daughter is abducted and violated. He left a leadership vacuum in his family so big that his violent sons filled that vacuum with actions of deceit and vengeance and murder. Jacob was the head of the people of God. He was the steward of God's covenant promise and people. By the end of the story... Jacob is more concerned for his own safety than for justice. You might say, Jacob was lost. You know how it is when you're lost? Have you ever felt lost? I mean, maybe in the woods, I'm not talking about that, but like just lost in life. You know how you feel when you've screwed up big time? Maybe when your sin or your decision has hurt someone else that you care about? You know how you feel. When I do that, I feel distant from other people. And I sure feel distant from God. I feel disqualified. So it's amazing to me that the first five words in Genesis chapter 35, after Jacob's epic failure, are, Then God said to Jacob... Now, if you were writing the story, then God said to Jacob, how would you finish that? Then God said to Jacob, what are you thinking? That would be a nice thing to say. Then God said to Jacob, I am taking away the blessing and giving it to someone more qualified. You've blown it. Then God said to Jacob, take not another step further, I'm zapping you. I mean, all of these within, I mean, it would make sense. Like, if that was in the Bible instead of what's really in the Bible, we would probably read it and say, yeah, that makes sense. Like, Jacob totally deserves it. But what doesn't make sense is what God actually says. God actually initiates the rebuilding of a relationship. He extends grace to Jacob. You first see this just in the fact that after chapter 34, God speaks to him at all. I mean, Jacob could have gone to his grave without God ever speaking to him again. And maybe one of Jacob's kids gets a revelation from God later on. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that this could go. But God doesn't wait for Jacob to come groveling back. 
He initiates the relationship. Second, he initiates contact with Jacob, not to punish him or condemn him, but to encourage him in his calling. He calls Jacob to get up and go to Bethel, to move on with his life. And most importantly, he invites Jacob to worship. We all make mistakes every day probably, and sometimes they're biggies. And when you make a big mistake and you feel that lost feeling, the last place you feel like you want to go is church, right? Because that's where everybody's happy. and We're trying to be authentic, but you know how it is. And the last place you want to come is to a place where... You feel the real contrast of holiness and you. It's really hard to come and seek forgiveness, to come back into the community and confess what you've done and all that stuff. And I just think it's beautiful like that God initiates not only contact with Jacob, but then invites him to worship. He gives him permission to do what every human being is created to do, worship. We all get hung up when we fail. Newsflash. (laughs) Don't you think God knows you're going to fail? Our failures and our wounds can either ruin us or we can respond to God's gracious call to keep stumbling in the right direction. Keep following me, daughter. Keep following me, son. Come worship me. That's where life is at. Remember Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, denied Jesus three times. When Jesus was crucified, Peter was nothing. Destroyed. Lost. But when Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he showed up to Peter on a beach around a charcoal fire and restored Peter. Peter repented at the kindness of that Jesus showed to him. And that kindness, when Peter starkly didn't deserve it, that kindness galvanized their relationship. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, right? From the book of Romans. Third, God is a God that cares about history. He cares about the past. He cares about you right now. And He cares about what's going to happen. And... God reminds Jacob that he was with him the whole time since the day he fled his brother Esau. God reminds Jacob, hey buddy, I've been with you for 20 years. Remember when I met you in the desert when you just had a stone for a pillow? I've been with you the whole time. And and I think the way I interpret this is all of a sudden that news hits Jacob like a semi-truck full of epiphany. Oh my gosh, I've been so afraid of of these Canaanite people. I've been afraid my own daughter was taken and I was afraid to act. And oh my God, you, in the best sense, I'm not swearing, like, oh my God, you have been with me for 20 years. You've been there the whole time. God has been faithful. God has been good to Jacob. God has protected him. He's increased his family. He's provided abundantly. And when you are spiritually weak, when you feel disqualified and alone, I encourage you to just stop and to take stock of where God has been with you over your life. Here's a little little thing. 
How is it that you're here right now? Hearing the good news of God in a group of people who love you. Or if you're new tonight, I'm telling you this group of people really cares for you. How is it that that happened tonight? Is that coincidence? Or is that the work of a faithless God? I don't think so. Is that the work of a God who has been with you and seen you through ups and downs? Remembering God's faithfulness is a powerful, powerful thing. And recalling his forgiveness is life-changing. When Peter failed Jesus, you know what he did, right? I mean, he was, he was a fisherman. Jesus called him out of fishing. He becomes a fisher of men. He becomes this one of the three inner disciples with Jesus. But when Jesus is crucified, Peter knows he's failed his master, his friend, his Lord. He goes back to fishing for fish. He hangs it all up. But when Jesus restores him, when he forgives him, Peter is willing now to lead a revolutionary movement that is going to change the world. Peter, all of a sudden, because of the kindness of Jesus and his forgiveness and that new life in the Spirit, Peter all of a sudden is willing and will die for Jesus. So Jacob is this passive leader all through chapter 34. And then all of a sudden in chapter 35, it's like, okay, God's speaking to me and I get a new lease on life. Come on, family, we're going to worship in Bethel. And as an act of trust, he calls his family and all those with him to purify themselves as they go to Bethel. Specifically, he says three things. Get rid of the foreign gods. Purify yourselves. And change your clothes. You guys stink. No, it's, it, changing your clothes is kind of an outward way of, of showing a renewed spirit, a renewed faith. It's a repentance act. So let's address these in reverse. Symbols have always been powerful in human civilizations. In the ancient Near East, there were numerous ways to purify yourself through washing with special waters and saying special things. And it, changing your clothing was symbolic of turning a new leaf, changing your life. Washing and changing your clothes are kind of outward signs of an inward transformation. Sound kind of familiar, right? Like baptism. Like a baptism, why do you think we put on those dorky white robes? It's showing uh, you clothed in the purity of Christ. In the water, we are simultaneously being washed anew, our sins washed away. We go under the water, symbolizing our death with Christ. And when you break the crest of the water, you, that first breath you take is the first breath of new life. Isn't that a beautiful symbol? Similar thing going on here. Jacob and his family then also give up their idols, their graven images. And oftentimes when I've heard people speak about idols, they talk about idols in our lives uh, being the things that maybe take up our time that we should be devoting to God. So I've heard people say, well, you know, the NFL is an idol for some people because they watch a lot of football and they should be going to church. And probably a good point to you if I choose worshiping community over football but uh you know or uh, your your work is an idol or your child is an idol i've kind of heard idolatry spoken of like that 
But I think that misses the meaning of what's going on here, and I'm going to try and break it down in context. You see, idolatry in the ancient Near East was really about trust and control. In their worldview, everything was controlled by the spiritual realm. If it rained, it's because some rain god wanted it to rain. And if it didn't rain, it meant the rain god was mad or the sun god was more powerful than the rain god. Um, Everything was, they thought, controlled by the spiritual. Fertility, wisdom, favor and warfare. And so the people believed that if they had these household gods and they did the right prayers and they gave the right offerings, that then these, these gods of these different natural phenomena would give them favor. It was about control. In getting rid of their idols then, think of this backwards, they were saying to the God, we are going to trust you. We don't need these other crutches for our security. The golden earrings, another thing. Uh, He talks about burying those with the gods under the oak of Shechem. Uh, The golden earrings were probably spoils of war that they took when they slaughtered all those Hivites. Again, gold equals security. In an agrarian society, you can be wealthy with lots of sheep and crops. But when famine comes, all your wealth dies. But if you have gold, you can always buy the rich people's grain that they have stored up even during a famine. So idols in context represent the root of our sin. The things we trust in place of God. Now that's football for you, fine. That could be an idol. But I think it's more foundational, more fundamental than that. Jacob was so concerned for his security that he was afraid to follow God to Bethel. He was willing to settle for less than God's best by intermarrying with the Hivites. But when he, when he came to himself in light of God's faithfulness, when it hit him like that truck that, oh my goodness, God has been with me this whole 20 years... He gains his courage back. And not courage in what he can do, but courage in God, who has been with him the whole time. He stepped out in faith. He placed his trust in God alone. And now pay attention to what happens. What was he afraid of? Remember the end of the last chapter? He was afraid the Canaanites were all going to kill them if he went to Bethel. So check this out. As they journeyed, there was great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, which is Bethel, that is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who are with him. Now isn't that just like God? We get so hung up on fear, and so many times we're so afraid we don't take a step of faith. We know God's calling us to try something. And Julia, I'm looking at you, and I'm thinking all of these years that... I think at least three years now, Julie and I have been talking about this call that God is calling her to start this therapy clinic for, uh, for pediatrics and for this huge need in our county. And it, it sounds impossible. It sounds ridiculous. How does a, someone, a one person do that? But through prayer and many of your help, we're ever closer to this thing actually happening. Woo! Right? i found, like I'm sure you have found, that trusting God is the greatest adventure ever. And when you take a step that is beyond your capability, beyond your intellect, beyond your skill set, 
You get to see God at work. You get to see... Now, let's not kid ourselves. God is always at work. God is holding the universe together right now. I don't know if you knew that, but be glad He is. Because He wants to. It's His will. You know, God is doing all kinds of things behind the scenes right now that you and I take for granted. That you and I chalk up to the laws of physics or biology. And it's real easy to take those things for granted. But when Jacob set out into the unknown, into a situation where by human standards, success was very unlikely, he got to see God work. And it was undisputable. You can't just put that up to, oh, maybe the Canaanites got scared of our, like, hundred guys. I don't, that doesn't happen. The nations were confronted with the holiness of God, going with the people of God. And they were terrified. And all of a sudden we realize that God has been with Jacob the whole time. He was with him in those tedious years with Laban. He was with him in his failure in Shechem, just as he was with him in his desert dream and his wrestling match. The question is never, God, are you with me? The question is always, are you with God? Because he's always there. After 20 years of pilgrimage, Jacob returns home. It is the same place where he first encountered God, head on a stone in a dream. The same geography. But Jacob is different. He's been tested. And he's found God to be faithful. And God, of course, reaffirms his covenant. The same covenant that he made with Abraham and with Isaac. He reaffirms now with Jacob. And he says, Israel shall be your name. Now, didn't he already say that one other time? Yeah, but now in this section, I think we understand that the name change has not so much about Jacob and who he is and his character. The name change is about Jacob's God. Israel literally means God fights and Jacob has learned, just as we are learning, that God fights for us. He goes to battle for us. He knows our weakness. He's not surprised about your tendencies to fail. He's never demanded your perfection. I know that's a surprise. He's just demanded your trust. This is the God who fights in the most backward of styles. Instead of coming and smiting his enemies, he became flesh and died for those enemies. So is there anything that can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not a thing. The only hindrance we have is not believing. Not giving up our facades of control and our idols in order to trust Jesus. Corey and I went on a pilgrimage this past summer to the island of Iona in Scotland. It's been a place of pilgrimage for 1,450 years. Pilgrimage is about the journey, as I said earlier. And ultimately, it has its impact on what happens to you when you return home. Well, while I was away from the treadmill of life, I was confronted by some of my idols, some of the things that I put my trust in. And I remember, in fact, I just read it this morning, uh, what I wrote in my journal. I wrote, I feel like I have been living like a pre-pilgrimage Bilbo Baggins. Like I've been relegated to managing my life rather than living it. Anyway, I'll tell you more about that later. 
But there's this ancient road I want Jen to put up on the screen. It takes you from this place called Martyr's Bay where a bunch of Columban monks were slaughtered by Vikings. It's the place where pilgrims would land in their boats. And they would walk this road, the Road of the Dead it's called. And it goes through a cemetery where for centuries and centuries kings and knights and bishops have been buried on the holy island of Iona. And it ends up at the shrine of St. Columba near this holy spot with an incredible cross that you'll get to see if you come to our presentation on the 5th. Anyway, in between the abbey and the bay, there's this graveyard. And on the pilgrimage, it's encouraged that you stop and kneel on this road. And that you put to death your idols and the things that you've been trusting in rather than God. And the cool thing about this process is you don't have to go to Scotland to do it. You really don't have to leave your seat. In fact, in just a moment, we're going to transition to our healing prayer time. Charles and I are going to be up front at these benches. And you may want to just take a moment looking at the road of the dead and ask God to take some of the things that maybe you've been propping yourself up with, facades uh, of, of lesser gods. Maybe you want to take stock at some of the ways that God has been with you over the years and say yes afresh to putting your faith in Him. So I want to encourage you to use this space as a gift for yourself. And I also want to encourage you to take advantage of this time of healing. It can be emotional. It could be something about this. It could be physical. We serve and worship a living God who is active in our lives. And no, we don't always know what His will is and what His best is. He calls us to pray and to lay hands on Him to anoint with oil. And that's what we're going to do.